You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture comes from Mark 10, 17 through 34. Mark 10, 17 through 34. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witnesses. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking, t- taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the, over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Now that my microphone's on because I turned it off as I was coming up here, um, you can hear me. So I'm out of practice. It's been a couple weeks, y'all. So here we go. Let's take a look at this. And there's a couple themes that I want you to see as we look at this. And so the obvious theme is we have the theme of money. Like we have the theme of the blinding power of money and possessions and that we see this guy like come with an earnest, like Jesus, I want to follow after you. How can I have eternal life? How can I earn this? How can I be a part of this? How can I know that I'm loved by God? And so we see the theme of money and we're at, we are going to deal with that. That's actually going to be just kind of a part of it because we also see what Jesus does. Jesus invites him into a relationship. Like he says, listen, one thing you lack, like lay your love down, lay the first love down and come. And he says, follow me. 
Walk with me. Live with me. Interact with me. Find that there is far more joy in living life with me and following me than there is in any amount of possessions. Find the true joy that you want. Like he calls him into a relationship. And then the rich young man walks away. And it says that he was deeply saddened as he walked away. Like this is actually talking about things that we know uh, about relationships. Like we know that you know, relationships are going to show something about you. They're going to bring something in you that you don't want others to see if you are around them long enough. Like this is why like when you date... Like there's a beginning of the day and an end of the day because you are trying to smell the best, look the best, act the best, be the best, say the best things, and you can only do it for so long. And then, you know, you, you get married, you start living, or you have this friendship, and, and it starts to extend. And all of a sudden, the ugly part of you that you didn't want anyone to see, it comes out. And it's at that moment, like, you can act like it doesn't exist, or you can make a choice. You can keep that part of yourself and say, that is the way it is, and you can sever or hurt the relationship, or you can hold it open and be like, that is in me, and I need help. And you can hold it open-handedly, and you can walk deeper in a relationship. When we do premarital counseling, like something always comes up. I love putting things on continuums. And every time I put it on a continuum, even in my living room, I always do this. I'm like, hey, on one side over here. And they're like, we're all right here. You don't have to like, I just want to hug you, you know. And so like on one side in a relationship, you can have control. But on the other side of the relationship is intimacy and you can't have both. You can try to control what people see in you, or you can try to control the relationship, but if you choose that, you will never have intimacy over here, or you can lay control down and you can find intimacy. You can't have both. And the same is true when we come to Jesus. It's only more true. See, what's so alarming is not that Jesus asked for him to lay down everything. What's so alarming is in great sadness, he did and he walked away from the God of the universe. He walked away from a relationship because he agreed with Jesus. There is a love that I love more than you. And it's in all of us. And so, I mean, if we're just kind of kind of like, like I, was, uh, I was in college and uh, we, one of my good friends, he uh, was dating a girl I knew from high school, which, I mean, we weren't ready for that. When he started dating her, I was like, really? Uh, and then they got married, and, and they're doing great. Uh, but she uh, was out of college, and she was um, a flight attendant. And so she had moved to Florida. And I remember, like, their relationship, I mean, distance is hard. Like, I mean, if you've been in a long-term, like, you know, a long-distance relationship, like, it's hard. And I didn't know how hard it was getting until I came home one day after class and my friend Jason, he was like leaning over the counter like this with a phone, like a real phone. Like, you know, the phone that used to hang up on a wall that had a cord on it, like it was a phone phone. Like he was leaning over it like this and I come in and he was really quiet and I'm like, hey, Jason, you okay? And he didn't answer me. I was like, hey man, you Okay. And he took the phone and he smashed it against the wall. And then he just walked into the room and went to bed at like 3 p.m. And I was like, I'm guessing you're not doing okay. I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not the most perceptive person. I guess that's an answer of things are not okay, or that phone made you really angry, you know? And so later that night, I was able to talk to him, and like he and his now wife, man, it was just hard. And we had talked big game about, hey, we'll road trip with you. We'll get in a car and we'll just drive to Florida. And so it was like, guys, we've got to do this. So we road tripped, all, four of us, in a, in a, in a four-door like Honda Civic. Like, but it was smaller back then. Or maybe we were bigger. I don't know. And we drove all the way out there just so he could see her. So like he wouldn't break all our phones, you know. And so we get out there, and somewhere along the way, and, you know, I mean, just guys traveling, I mean, that we smell bad, and, you know, it gets out of hand, and you tell each other lies, you know, things that you can do that you really can't do. And at one point, we're going into a parking garage, and I grew up in Ponca City, Oklahoma. I don't have a lot of parking garage experience and uh, they have those little uh, uh, tire uh, things, you know, that if you go the wrong way, supposedly they'll slash your tires. I mean, it looks like Freddy Krueger. You know, Freddy Krueger reaches up to kill you. And so he had those things. And something came up where Roddy says, you know, they're really not as sharp as you think. Now, Roddy's one of my best friends. And so I'm like, oh, they're not as sharp as you think. He's like, no, you would think they come to like a, like a needle point, but they really don't. And at this point, man, I start making fun of him, like, oh, you don't think they're sharp? And so we start arguing about just how sharp the tire shredder, Freddy Krueger shredders are. So we have to go back around the parking garage to get out of the car to look at it. And he was right. Like, I mean, I think they would shred your tire, but they're not like Freddy Krueger's claws. I mean, they're not like super, super sharp. Like, they're not what I expected, but it was a moment. I can admit he's right, or I can just double down and act like I don't see what's there. And so we keep just kind of bantering and arguing. And my friend Rodney, still one of my best friends today, he said, man, this is sometimes what frustrates me with our friendship. And it was a moment where I'm like, I realized, like, man, I, um, do I really just want to be right? Or do I want to have this relationship? And I, I remember I just said, Rodney, man, I don't know. Man, I, and I probably didn't say it this eloquently because um, I wasn't this eloquent, y'all. Um, but what I tried to con convey was just this idea, man, I don't know why that's in me. It's just like I see so many things that you're just so much better at. Like his GPA was better. He was a two-time state champ wrestling. And so every time I wrestled some, when we wrestled, he would just hurt me. Like, I mean, it was fun for him, not fun for me. Like, I mean, he had cooler hair. I mean, definitely has cooler hair now. I mean, all these different things. I was just like, man, I just feel like I just don't measure up. And so, but one thing I have is, man, I am witty and sarcastic and like, you're in trouble with that. And so I was like, I feel like one thing and it was just a moment where it's like, man, I could hang on to this thing and I might lose something that I really loved that was far more valuable. It's true in every relationship. Like, could you imagine, like it's wedding season, could you imagine like stepping into a marriage 
And these are the wedding vows. Like the wedding vows come out and they say something like this. You know, they're like, I love you, but I will always choose my career first. It will be my first love. Or I love you, but I will always, you know, I'll only be with you if you can give me this kind of house or this kind of lifestyle. Or I love you as long as your looks don't slide. Could you imagine? Because what that's saying is, sure, I love you, but there is a love above my love for you that I will always choose. Like no one, I mean, you wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I mean, would you? I mean, that does not, Aerosmith does not sing that song, you know? Like I lie awake as long as you can give me the house I want. I mean, he doesn't sing this song. Like I love you, but I love something more. See, Jesus sees the rich young ruler. It says Jesus loves the rich young ruler. And Jesus confronts the rich young man in front of him with, this is in you. And it is the competing love that will make you walk away. But you can lay it down. So as we look at this, and we will, like this text is about a a rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks, what do I need to do to be saved? What must I do to be loved by God? This is coming right after, if you look at your Bibles, look at Mark 10, like in verses 13 through 16, this comes right after where Jesus says, to get into the kingdom of God, you gotta be like a child. And what we see is like almost the opposite of that. Instead of like little, hopeful, trusting child, we see accomplished, powerful, and connected. And if you see toward the end of this chapter, to comfort the disciples, he calls them children again. He says there has to be a reshaping inside of us that we come expecting good things and we come just excited to be there. And to think about this, like you see little babies, before they can understand jokes, before they can understand anything, when they see their mom or dad, they laugh and clap with delight. Inviting you into that kind of relationship, to resurrect that kind of awe inside of you. He says, you have to lay something down. And so we're going to, we're going to look at this, um, just two points. And so the first one is the danger. We're going to look at the danger that we are in. And then the second one is the invitation that is offered. Let me pray for us and we're going to get started. I'll do it fast because I'm going long. God, Lord, we love you And Lord, I pray that as we look at the danger, you would actually scare us. Lord, I pray that we would see a competing love that is in all of us, that we are afraid of the times that we disobey you or walk away from you. Or if we don't know you yet, if you're in the room and you're like, I don't know about Jesus, I pray that you would be haunted with that competing love right now. But Lord, I pray that we'd also see the invitation offered that Jesus looks at you and says, I know you, I see you, I see all the flaws, I see the you that you don't show anyone else, that you are scared to death that people would know right now, that you won't even let yourself look at very carefully. I see that you and I love that you because there is no other you. Lord, I pray that we'd be scared and then we would be relieved. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, here we go. First, the danger that we're in. And this is a way that we could say it. Like We're in a special danger when we have lots of evidence that says, I'm pretty okay. Like, like, or we could just simply say it like this. When we think we're doing all right, like when we think we have a grip on life and that we have answers to the problems, or when we think that we're sufficient for the moment, like there is a danger inside of us because we think we're okay. So look at verse 17. It says, And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He said, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All of these I have kept for my youth. And so like these verses, like we don't get a lot of description uh, on the front end of like who this guy is. But taken as a whole, if we unpack this, we actually see a lot about this guy. And, And so the first thing is like we see that this guy is young and successful. And so it says right here in verse 17, And as he, Jesus, was setting out a journey, a man ran up to him. But if you look at the title above it, or if you look in Matthew 19 when it talks about it, it describes this guy as a rich young man or a rich young ruler. Like it gives us a description, like this guy is young. This guy has a lot of influence and power. He's wealthy. He's probably ambitious. Like he also has authority, like a rich young ruler. Like first off, like that, if that's not speaking the language of our cultural idolatry, like I don't know what is. Like, like first, rich Like he has resources, he has a track record of being successful, he has choices, he has securities, doors open up for him. Young, like he's probably pretty, he probably has abs, he probably has cool flippy hair, and he's rich on top of it, so he's probably dressed right, he gets the right t-shirt that accentuates his arms, but hides his gut, like he probably has all of that. Ruler. He has authority and influence. People look at him and they think prestige and connections. Like all of a sudden, kind of encapsulating, we see our hopes. Like with that, there's probably a sense of, man, I love being known as this young, successful type. Like it's become a characteristic, something that's opened doors for him. Like his success and health would start to maybe even make you think, man, God must love me. Now, I mean, before we kind of make fun of that, like we all have a little wrestle with the prosperity gospel of like, I think God must think a lot of me when things go good for me or when I'm healthy. Like we look at other people and when their life is going better or they are looking better or their health is better, we start to think maybe God loves them more. We start to think, maybe I should do something so God will love me more. Or maybe I did something that made God love me less. Like we see a lot of our idolatries wrapped up in this description. But there's more in this description. Like verse 17, it goes on. And he said, 
And as he was setting out on his journey, it says, A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, we could kind of just say this. Like, he knows who Jesus is. He knows who he is in the moment. Like, he comes and he bows down. He's quick to get there. He calls him good teacher. Like, there are some social things going on. Like, he's kind of socially aware. Like, I mean, if you don't relate with that at all, that means you've never been in a social setting and just done something incredibly stupid and thought, well, they'll never invite me back. Like, there's a social awareness. But he's also pretty morally good and pretty religious. Like, like verse 17 through 20, like, Jesus confronts him, like, hey, why do you call me good? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But he goes on, he says, you know the commandments. And look at the commandments. These are commandments 5 through 10. All of these commandments deal with how you relate to other people. He says, don't murder. That's a way you relate to people. Don't murder them, okay? And so he says, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, I've done all of these things since my bar mitzvah. I've done all these things since my youth. And Jesus doesn't say, you liar, liar, pants on fire. Now, he probably could have. I mean, he probably could have. Like, he's probably kept some of these. But he says, hey, since my youth, like, hey, I haven't, I haven't sexed around. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't defrauded and stolen. Like, my parents still like me. You know, he could say, like, I've done a pretty good job of all of these things. And Jesus leaves it alone. He probably could have pressed it. But that's the way we do it. Like we look around and we're like, man, listen, I'm doing a pretty good job compared to those people. Jesus doesn't even mess with it. And he says, you know, you have done a pretty decent job with these. But he runs to a commandment that he hasn't held at all. He runs to the first commandment. That you put nothing else before God. He runs to something that is bigger and more blinding. He runs to something that's harder to see. He runs to something that will damn you if it doesn't get confronted, if it doesn't get drawn out, if you don't see it. He runs to something that must happen for any of us to be in a real relationship. He runs to what's really in you, like what you really love, what you're really about, and he confronts him. He holds up the mirror and he says, yeah, you might have done pretty good with other people. But what do you love above God? He runs to the first commandment and he says there's a danger inside of all of us. And in essence, he does what the Bible does to us now. It holds up a mirror to us that we see ourselves and we see who we really are. And we're supposed to see the depths of that brokenness. And we're supposed to identify with people who maybe done something worse because we see the same sin and the same roots inside of us. And it's supposed to put us in this place of like, I need God. He holds up this mirror and he says but what about the first commandment and he almost takes it back to the very first verse like what happens the rich young ruler what is what's his question he runs up and he says what must i do you see the, the correlation and the danger that we can see with money is if you work hard a lot of times you can amass and open doors you can amass wealth and i know some of you guys are like man i'm working hard it's not working sometimes it doesn't work out 
But like you can go to the right schools and you can have the right connections and you can stay long hours and you can work hard and you can amass. And the danger is that we try to operate in our spiritual life in the same way. If I do the right things, if I give to the right causes, then God's going to open, God's going to love me more. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And what Jesus is going to say is he's going to say, there is nothing you can do, but there is a relationship that you must have. And, and so the first, like, do you see this warning? Like, is there a competing love inside of your life that you see it, man, it raises up all the time, whether that's reputation or status or just kind of like people know you as the person who can't be frazzled and you just don't care and yet you are scared to death and insecure but you hide it and so you you you, you closely monitor all your social media interactions you know and so it's like the moment like you know uh you, you have the pictures of of your kids like throwing flour all over you're like oh man my crazy life but you didn't post the you know the moment before that where your kids learn some new words you put on a demeanor that people see it because you think there is a salvation inside of that and you're afraid if they actually see the fear inside of you, they won't love you. And so Jesus, he ignores the pretty good obedience to commandments five through 10 to show the absolute damning power of breaking commandment one, loving something more than God. Do you feel the warning? I mean, I hope it's not just me. We all have a competing love that, man, when the Bible talks about crucifying, man, it just doesn't seem to die. It just keeps coming up. And so there's a warning, but there's also an invitation. And so the invitation offered, Jesus exposes the real him and invites him to receive what is true and to lay down the competing love to walk with him. So look at verse 21. In verse 21 it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so this is the moment. Jesus wasn't confused about the interaction that just happened. Like, if you back up to even look at the interaction in verses 17 through 20, like, you see him run up. He hurries up. He runs up. He bows down. He says, good teacher. Now, like, that doesn't seem super weird to us. But, like, all the commentaries that I looked at is like, hey, this is, like, major suck-up talk. Like, this is, like, over the top. Like, it would be normal, like a sign of respect to bow down and say, hey, teacher. Like, that's like, you know, calling someone doctor, you know. It, it's a sign of respect. Like, we see you as authoritative. That would have been normal. But running up and bowing down and saying, good teacher, it, the commentator's like, it doesn't exist in antiquity. Like, we don't see another example of it. Everyone hearing that would have been like, this guy is over the top. This guy is trying to woo Jesus. This guy is trying to go above and beyond to show a certain version of him to say, you can't turn me away. I have all the things that should open this door. And the thing is that we do that with God. Like we, 
we don't want to look exactly at like the brokenness that we have or the times that we blew it or the deep insecurity and fear or all the other things that we've run after to find joy. We don't want to really look at that. And so we just look at our past record. Like we look at the best things about us and we think, man, if we just focus on that, that maybe Jesus won't see anything else. But Jesus sees the real him and he loved him. Now, in, in, um, in your pursuits for relationships, there's a danger to try to show a version of you because you believe that is the only version that has a chance of being lovable. And then you get close into a friendship or you get close into a family or you get close into a relationship and all of a sudden the you that's really you comes out and it's a scary moment because you're like, I don't know if anyone can love that me. But here's the problem. If the you that is really you never comes out, you will always live in fear and insecurity of, am I really loved or do they just love the act? See, that's why so many times we blow from friendship to friendship or we might blow from city group to city group or from church to church or from relationship to relationship because what happens is the real them comes out or the real me comes out and it's this fearful moment of that's not lovable. But it's a rapturous thing when the real you comes out and the person across from you, the friend across from you or the lover across from you or the husband or the wife across from you says, I see it. And I still love you. See, the danger is we try to bring like the proper, the suck up version of us to God. And here's the problem. That case he doesn't, that Casey doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't actually love that Casey because that Casey isn't real. Jesus didn't die for that Casey. That's why we grow in our faith through repentance by saying what is real, by saying, I don't even understand why it's still there. If you've been in the Bible reading plan, and you should be, and right now just shake your head, be like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. We're in Romans. And so not long ago, you read Romans 7, where Paul has this that moment where he says, man, I don't know why I do the bad things that I keep doing, but I keep doing them. I hate them, but I do them. And he says, but then I do good things, but I'm doing them for all the bad reasons. Like, I can't stop that, but I should probably still do the good things. And then he says, yeah, I think it's verse 18 and 19. He gets to the end of it, and he says, At, in myself, I see something. He says, I see the law of God that I want to do. But then he says, I see another law at work in my mind trying to get me to do the law of Satan. He says, I see another law that he doesn't even define. It's like this spiritual war over my mind that brings condemnation and accusation, raises up pride that's in the flesh. Like he brings, he says, I see something at work in me that makes me want to hide when I don't do well. That makes me want to throw someone else under the bus to make me look better. That makes me want to point out someone's flaws really specifically. But when it comes to my sin, I mean, no one's human, you know. I mean, everyone's a sinner. I see a law at work inside of me. And it really comes out when I get around other people. And it really comes out when I get in the presence of Jesus. But this says Jesus saw him loved the real him.
And then it goes on. I kind of covered that already. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he, the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Like the scary moment is that we would choose the competing love over Jesus. And the question is, are you doing it right now? And if you're doing it, can you name it and just say sorry? Verse 23, it says this, it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it says, The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children. And so this is picking up from verses 13 to 16. He says, The only way to get into the kingdom of God is to receive it like a child. And so he says, Listen, don't bring your, your best. Don't bring your strengths. Don't bring those things just to impress me. Bring the wonder. Bring the, 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 the faith. Bring like, I can't get in unless you let me in. Come in like a child. He says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Like right here, like this is where people get super weird. Like, like commentaries say things, and I don't, I don't think this is right, but they say, hey, camel, it's close to the word for rope, you know? And so it's like, man, you know, it'd be really hard to put a rope through a needle, but maybe it could be done. Like it's just going to be hard. Or they talk about like an entrance into this eye. In Jerusalem, there's a small entrance called the, you know, the, the needle uh, eye or whatever. And it's like, that's for people, but maybe a camel could get through if it squatted down and you took everything off. But I think it's just saying something like this. I think it's just saying, man, take the biggest thing you can think of and the smallest thing that you can conceive. And it's like trying to get through that. It's impossible. I mean, this is, this is Palestine. There's not a lot of elephants. There's no blue whales. And so it's like Jesus saying, man, what's the biggest thing? Oh, a camel. It's the biggest thing you can think of. Oh, the eye of a needle. It's the smallest thing. That's what it's going to take for someone with power to think, I need help. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I think the point is, it's impossible for us to do anything to inherit eternal life. No amount of pushing or striving can save us. And if we're pretty okay, it's hard to see that. That's the danger. The only thing that can save you is admitting a truth and then laying it down. And I think that Jesus is pointing at just the largest and the smallest thing the disciples could think of to paint the picture that we are in trouble if we don't have what he's about to offer. And so then in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. 
But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Like just, he packs this thing on, he says, listen, laying down the thing that you think opens all the doors, the thing that won't be you if you lay it down, the best part of you, laying that down has a hundredfold return. A hundredfold, and he says in this life and the next life, he just says, it'll be worth it if you walk with me. You can't have control and intimacy. And so the call is an invitation into a saving relationship that Jesus says, I actually see you, the you you don't want anyone to see, and I love that you. But remember, the rich young ruler walked away grieved. The word that's used there, it it describes the way Jesus cried over Jerusalem and the way he was going to the cross, grieved. Because he couldn't conceive his life without that first love. Do you know what that first love is? Like what that is in you? Like, If you're a believer, you have to know what it is because you have to crucify it all the time. Laying it down is saying, Jesus, whatever you want to do with it, that's fine. You know, when, when, when he looks at him, Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and it says that he loved him. I think there's a part because he understood what laying down meant. Yeah, I said the only way into this relationship is a very specific laying down. There's a laying down that you need to do, but it's only possible because there was a greater laying down that happened because although this rich young man probably had a lot of things, he had nothing compared to who he was talking to. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus left the courts of heaven. He left homes and mansions and kingdoms and came to the earth. You know, it goes on to tell us that he made himself obedient to, to death. And so he left all earthly wealth. He left this life. He left a relationship so that we could be included. Like the Bible is pointing to this picture that although this guy would have had to leave so much, he left nothing compared to the true rich young ruler who left everything. Like Jesus left everything so that on the cross just like in this moment he looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him on the cross Jesus looked at you and loved you sometimes we wonder if I lay that down will it be worth it like you might be looking at a relationship if I step into marriage and have to lay down my independence will it be worth it and what he says is a hundred times. To have this saving relationship, this relationship that sustains joy that no amount of money or possessions can, a joy that is more securing than the economy or opportunities or even healthy relationships or health itself. To have this relationship with Jesus, you have to look at the real you and lay down what is true. But it's so hard to lay down a love unless you see what Jesus has laid down. And then that's what he describes. Look at verse 32. He says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. It's always fearful when God comes after a first love. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus laid everything down to invite you into a saving kind of relationship. And that's what we remember every time we take communion. Remember what the laying down involved. Like the laying down involved a broken body that was broken for you. It was broken to bring you into a kind of family, a hundredfold kind of family a kind of family that we got to experience just a little bit of giving. You know, giving to a place that we never knew to try to provide a church building that we don't even have. Like a giving. Christian, the body of Jesus broken for you. But we also come and remember the spilling of Jesus' blood that was poured out, that all of him was poured out, all was laid down, that we could take up life again, life to the full. Christian, the blood of Jesus poured out for your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Lord, we need help. And there is a defining moment, a moment when we realize that it is worth laying something down, a moment that we realize that we look at us and we say, man, I, 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 I don't know why you would want me. I don't know how this is gonna work but I see Jesus as worth it and we just hold it open. But then Lord, there is every day afterwards that that competing love strives up, whether it's relationship or a status or success or a type of security that we just think we have to have. And you patiently pull our hands over it and say a hundredfold, I laid down everything so that I could have a relationship with you. And so just as Ethan kind of built that picture of what is that thing that you would need to name? Like just a great picture would be like just naming it in your heart or saying it on your lips and just putting an open hand and saying, you're worth it. I need faith for that right now, but you're worth it. Lord, don't let us walk away sad. In Jesus' name, amen.